This is Our American Stories, and it's time for our special presentation on the life of the most famous magician and illusionist of all time. Jesse Edwards brings us the story of the great Harry Houdini. We begin the story of Harry Houdini, the most famous magician the world has ever known, on the night of October 31st, 1936, on the rooftop of the Nickenbacher Hotel in Hollywood, California. Ten years to the day after Houdini died on Halloween of 1926. Tonight, we are in the very heart of glamorous Hollywood that Houdini loved so well. He lived here, he worked here, Houdini loved Hollywood. It's the Houdini night with the spotlight of the public on Houdini. With the whole world paused to see our dear Houdini step on this side of the curtain. The great Houdini had made a pact with his wife Bess that he would make every attempt to communicate with her as a spirit from beyond the grave after he was dead. So, every year, on Halloween, the widow of Harry Houdini held a seance for him on the night of his departure for the next ten years without ever making contact. In this, the tenth and final official seance for Harry Houdini, gold invitations were sent to some 300 guests and reporters. Lights as far away as New York were dimmed and one minute of silence was observed as the ceremony began in prayer. Now, let us bow our heads in meditation and prayer. O thou master mind of the universe, please let the spirit of understanding descend upon us that are gathered here in the inner circle tonight. We are each in his own way seekers after truth, and we offer our grateful thanks to thee. Guide us, please. Amen. A table with Houdini's handcuffs was set near the edge of the roof, with the Hollywood sign as the prominent dramatic backdrop lit up in the distance of the Halloween night. Now, the final plea for the great Houdini to appear in spirit form. Oh, thou disembodied spirits, those of you that have grown old in the mysterious laws of spirit land, we greet thee. It is the spirit of Houdini we wish to contact. Houdini, are you here? Are you here, Houdini? Please manifest yourself in any way possible. Take from this earnest gathering any strength that may be necessary for you to use. Take any vital thing from us that you may need to enable you to carry out your promise of years ago. We have waited, Houdini, oh so long. Never have you been able to present the evidence you promised. And now, this is a night of night. The world is listening. Harry, your world, your audience. We are crying to high heaven. To the powers that be. We are crying in one mighty magnetic voice from every corner of the earth. And the hearts and minds of the multitudes are centered here tonight. We want the evidence, the truth. In the name of humanity and love, if there is communication from the great beyond, come through with the evidence. Yet again, like ten times before, Houdini did not come through from the other side. His wife, Bess, had no other choice but to concede. Mrs. Houdini, the 
hour has passed. The ten years are up. Have you reached a decision? Yes. Houdini did not come through. My last hope is God. I do not believe that Houdini can come back to me or to anyone. After faithfully following through the ten-year Houdini compact, using every type, medium, and theos, it is now my personal and positive belief that spirit communication in any form is impossible. I do not believe that ghosts or spirits exist. The Houdini Shrine has burned for ten years. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry. For ten years, Bess presided over these well-publicized seances. Though she stopped participating in 1938, not a single Halloween has passed since without an official Houdini seance held by magicians somewhere in the world as homage to the great Houdini. Which is somewhat ironic, considering that Harry Houdini was well known for his efforts to debunk spiritualist mediums and psychics. He even wrote a book about it, called A Magician Among the Spirits. He was a member of the Scientific American Committee, offering cash prizes to anyone who could demonstrate psychic abilities under the scrutiny of scientific observers. Houdini would debunk mediums by wearing elaborate disguises and infiltrating seances, where tricks of the trade could easily be exposed by one with such knowledge and illusions as Houdini possessed. But where did Houdini obtain this knowledge of illusion? And what drove him to such great lengths in his efforts to disprove psychics, mediums, and spiritualists? He was born in Budapest, Hungary, March 24, 1874, as Eric Weiss, the son of a rabbi and one of seven children. His family immigrated to the United States and settled in Wisconsin. Eric began to pursue an interest in magic, as his stage name, Eric Weiss, became Harry Houdini by adding an I to the last name of his idol, French magician Robert Houdin. Legend has it that young Houdini was apprenticed to a locksmith where he learned to assemble and take apart locks with his eyes closed. At 17 years old, Harry Houdini left his family to pursue his career in magic. Assisted by his little brother Theodore, Houdini began appearing in New York beer halls, theaters, museums, platforms next to snake charmers, fire eaters, and human oddities. They traveled as far west as Chicago, where the Brothers Houdini did quite well during the 1893 World's Fair. In 1894, while performing at Coney Island in Brooklyn, New York, Houdini met a performer named Bess, and they were married quickly before she joined him on stage to become the husband-wife act known as the Houdinis. For the rest of Harry's career, Bess worked as his stage assistant. Yet, Houdini began 1899 adrift and discouraged. He hadn't made much of a name for himself and was trying to make a living by doing card tricks and escaping from handcuffs. He was also dead broke. A year earlier, he had attempted to sell his entire act. But there were no takers. When we come back, the great Houdini finds success. Right here on Our American Stories.
We continue the story of the great Harry Houdini, who at this point had found moderate success, but hadn't yet become famous. His big break came in 1899 when he met manager Martin Beck in St. Paul, Minnesota, who convinced Houdini to concentrate on his escape acts. He then toured Europe, and his show was an immediate success. His salary rose to $300 per week. With his newfound wealth, he purchased a dress said to have been made for Queen Victoria. He then arranged for a grand reception where he presented his mother in the dress to all of their relatives. Houdini said it was the happiest day of his life. In 1904, he returned to the United States and bought a house for $25,000 in New York City. Harry Houdini had arrived, but his popularity was just beginning. Joshua Jay is a successful magician and respected Harry Houdini expert who joins us from the Contemporary Jewish Museum of San Francisco. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Houdini in a metaphorical sense. Who is Houdini? Houdini is five foot three. He's considered at this time period an outsider, Hungarian. He's an immigrant at a time when more immigrants were coming into the country than ever before. He's a minority, he's Jewish. So already you have a lot of things that people in that time viewed as stacked against you. He was an outsider, he wasn't thought of as American. And yet, somehow, he became America's first superstar. And he really was, that's not a, really even a debatable statement. He was America's first superstar because although there were people who were famous actors on the stage and later in silent pictures, they were famous for portraying other people, other powerful people. Houdini was famous for who he was. And who was he? He's this small Jewish immigrant, but chains can't hold him. He can escape from anything. That's an unbelievable metaphor given the time period. This isn't a time when most people are feeling repressed. Most people are feeling like there's a ceiling to how high they can rise. Here's a man without education, without any money. It's the ultimate rags to riches story. From 1907 and throughout 1910, Houdini performed with great success in the United States. He freed himself from jails, handcuffs, chains, ropes, and straitjackets, often while hanging from a rope inside of a street audience or out in front of a major newspaper for the extra publicity. Because of imitators, Houdini put his handcuff act behind him in 1908 and began escaping from a locked, water-filled milk can. Here again is Joshua Jay. Houdini was largely known for his escapes, but truthfully, most of his escapes were publicity stunts. They were done outside in harbors to get people to come to his magic shows. So this is why he would be seen upside down with a straitjacket or doing underwater escapes, bridge jumps. But in 1908, he had a brilliant idea to bring the major escapes to the stage. And this was the one that he brought. This is the milk can escape. It's an original Houdini illusion, and this is the original milk can. He would go inside the can, so only his head was emerged. And then he would do something brilliant. He would say to everybody in the audience, I have here the biggest stopwatch in the world. And he would bring out a big clock. And he would say, I want all of you to help me warm up my lungs by holding your breath for a minute with me. And he would get everybody in the audience to hold their breath. The timer would start, and he would go submerge himself into the can. Everybody tries to hold their breath. 30 seconds go by, and they learn it's hard. He comes up after a minute, they kick the can, and, and now it's brilliant, because what has he done? 
He hasn't shown you that what he's doing is impossible like most magicians. He's shown you that what he's doing is difficult and real. And that is a way that everybody, remember, even if there were 3,000 people in the crowd, could understand and identify on a very intimate level the real danger that he was attempting. Here again is magician Joshua Jay with the details on how exactly the milk can illusion worked. So this is how the illusion would work. He would say, after a moment of meditation, I will now hold my breath much longer. And he would resubmerge. Six assistants would place the top on the can and then lock the six padlocks on the side. A small curtain was placed around it. This was to protect the secret of his illusion, which remains a secret to this day. And then the clock would start ticking. After a minute, almost everybody in the audience couldn't hold their breath. After two minutes, the skeptics were scared. At the three minute mark, the theater manager would come out with an ax in his hand, looking very confused like this had never happened before. And of course, it happened every night, the same exact way. This is Houdini's brilliance with orchestrating a play and playing with your emotions. At the four minute mark, everybody in the audience was shouting, mercy, mercy for Mr. Houdini. And just as he was about to break open that can with an ax, Houdini would emerge from behind the curtain, soaking wet to thunderous applause. They ate it up, they loved it. Then they'd whisk away the curtain and the padlocks were still locked. It was as if he melted through the side. Now just because this was an illusion, it doesn't mean it wasn't truly dangerous. Joshua Jay describes one event where it cost an imitator everything. A Houdini imitator named Janesta attempted the milk can escape in 1930, four years after Houdini's death. But what Janesta didn't know is that as his crew was unloading the can, they dropped it. Now we don't know how Houdini did it, but we do know that Janesta did it with a trap door lid, a lid that even when locked, you could escape through. When they dented the can, they stopped the method of escape. The trap door wouldn't open. Janesta didn't know this until he was underwater inside the can with the padlocks locked. No way to shout for help, no way to signal what had happened. It took his wife, who was watching the trick from the wings, three minutes before she realized something had gone wrong. She ushered all the assistants in to help unlock the can. But of course, remember, the way the trick is supposed to work, they never have to unlock the padlocks. They couldn't remember which keys went to which locks. So they got mixed up and they lost another precious minute. By the time they unlocked the can, they opened it, Janesta lived only long enough so that they could explain to him how he had been killed. Harry Houdini had a few close calls himself over the years. Being buried alive was one of the most dangerous stunts that the magician ever pulled off. Assistants shackled and covered Houdini with earth six feet deep. Trying to dig his way out, he soon became exhausted and panicked. While calling for help, his hand finally broke the surface of the earth, and he passed out. In his personal diary, Houdini wrote that it was a very dangerous escape and that the weight of the earth is killing. Houdini's daredevil behavior wasn't just for the stage, but very much a part of who he was. In 1909, he became fascinated with aviation and purchased a 60-horsepower French biplane for $5,000. Houdini made his first flight near Hamburg, Germany on November 26, 1909. Just six years after the first flight of the Wright brothers, some reports say that Houdini was the 25th person to ever fly an airplane. 
At a time when air travel was highly experimental, this was truly another death-defying act to add to his repertoire. Houdini was also officially recognized as the first person to ever make a controlled flight in Australia by the Australian Aerial League. Harry Houdini, the great magician and handcuff king, arrives at Vickers Rest, 30 miles from Melbourne, with his international brigade, his American wife, car, and chauffeur, Brassic, his French mechanic, and French Wazen biplane, purchased through a German aviator in Germany to make history in Australia. His diary records, On my first trial flight, just after getting off the ground, I quickly flopped back to Earth. I smashed machine and broke propeller all to... It is interesting to note that this box kite type airplane evolved from the box kite gliders built and flown by Hargrave of Sydney, Australia in 1893 and became a model for French airplanes for many years. A trophy was presented to Houdini for Australia's first airplane flight. Just a few years later, on July 17, 1913, Houdini's mother, Cecilia Weiss, died after suffering a stroke. When news of her death reached Houdini, who was performing in Copenhagen, he fainted. It took Houdini several days to make it back to New York. The family delayed burial against Jewish custom just so Houdini could have one last look at his mother. Every day for a year he visited his mother's grave and every night at 15 minutes past midnight, the instant of her death. He lay flat on the ground, his arms embracing her grave, his face pressed close to the earth. There, he talked to her, begging her to let him know her last words. The great Harry Houdini, magician, handcuff king, jailbreaker, escape artist, daredevil, was painfully bound by his mother's death. When we come back, can Houdini escape the grasp of depression? This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and for all that we do, by the way, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Stories about everything, and in that last segment we heard about how Houdini was the 25th person to fly in the air just years after the Wright brothers did. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and listen to David McCullough for the hour talking about the Wright brothers, his terrific new book, The Wright Brothers, or not so new, but new if you haven't read it, and you can hear the whole story at Our American Network. Dot org. Just type the Wright Brothers in there, and you'll hear David McCullough walk us through, and all of us through, one of the great stories of American life. And now we return and continue with the epic tale of the great Harry Houdini, where he was suffering greatly over the loss of his mother. After the death of his mother, the great Houdini was in the throes of depression. The story from here usually goes that after his mother died, Houdini attended seances in the hopes to communicate with her. 
and that all he found was fraud. He then set out to expose fraudulent mediums and launched into a new wave of his career as an anti-spiritualism crusader and debunker. It's a good story. The trouble is, it's just not true. The notion that his mother's death led directly to his anti-spiritualism crusade has grown to become one of the most popular Houdini myths. It would be 10 years before Houdini unmasked his first medium. The true genesis of Houdini's anti-spiritualism crusade is rooted in his friendship with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author and creator of Sherlock Holmes. After World War I, spiritualism became extremely popular. Arthur Conan Doyle, who lost his son in the war, became a passionate champion of the movement. Serpents and spiders, tail of a rat, call in the spirits wherever they're at. Although Houdini insisted that spiritualist mediums employed trickery, Doyle became convinced that Houdini himself possessed supernatural powers. Here's the voice of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle from a recording in 1930 where he describes his view of spiritualism. In 1887, some curious psychic experiences came my way. And especially, I was impressed by the fact of telepathy, which I proved for myself by experiments with a friend. The question then arose, if two incarnate minds could communicate, is it possible for a discarnate one to communicate with one that is still in the body? For more than 20 years, I examined the evidence and came finally to the conclusion beyond all doubt that such communication was possible. I could give hundreds of illustrations to prove my point. But I can only refer you to the literature of the subject. The full importance of the matter did not come home to me until the war, when all the world was asking, where are our dead boys? And getting such unsatisfactory answers, both from the churches and from science. Then it was that my wife and I felt that our knowledge on the subject was of enormous importance, and that we could answer this universal question. While on the beach one day, Sir Arthur informed Houdini that his wife, Lady Doyle, had developed the power of mediumship herself and was sensing that Houdini's deceased mother wished to communicate with him. Privately, Bess Houdini had warned her husband that Lady Doyle had been peppering her with questions about his relationship with his mother just the day before. Nevertheless, Houdini agreed to the seance. Wrap on a table. It's time to respond. Send us a message from somewhere beyond. During the seance, Houdini's mother appeared to return through automatic writing, a process in which Lady Doyle transcribed words from beyond onto a notepad. Immediately, Houdini could see problems. The pages were in English, a language his mother did not speak. She also made the sign of a cross on the top of the first page. Not something you would expect from the wife of a rabbi. But Houdini concealed his doubts and thanked the Doyles for their seance. Sir Arthur told the press that Houdini had been converted to the religion of spiritualism. Harry Houdini countered publicly that he had not been converted and that he was more skeptical than ever. This raised the question of whether Houdini thought the Doyles were frauds. The public exchange put a strain on the friendship and Harry Houdini began to incorporate the debunking of spiritualism into his stage performances. There are those who would have you believe that they can foresee the future, heal wounds, talk to the dead. Talk to the dead. 
I've met hundreds of them. Table tappers, trumpet blowers, ectoplasmic saints. They'd rather we exercise our fantasies than our brains. I've invested years reaching across those psychic gulfs. You'd think I wouldn't if I could. I ache to believe. I wanted to talk to one single soul. How hard could that be? She died with one thought on her lips. For me. There are 20,000 medians practicing today, and none have spoken those words. And I warrant for my $10,000 reward, two-thirds of them have tried. If spirits are genuine, you think they'd warn us? There'd have been no passengers on the Titanic. There'd have been no deaths in the San Francisco quake. If ghosts, if ghosts can inhabit any self-proclaimed Madame Zaza, why not the lower forms of life? Why doesn't your, your poodle whisper warnings about the next train wreck? Or your, your Persian for warn or murder? Why? Animals don't have bank accounts. Here again is magician Joshua Jay with his perspective on Houdini's quest to challenge spiritualism. So, you're Houdini. By this time, you've achieved more fame than probably was ever even thought possible for a magician. He's one of the most famous figures alive, but something's happened. He's getting older, right? He's famous for being a dashing, young, immigrant magician, making these escapes with young assistants, showing off the physicality of his body, but now he's bordering 50 years old. He's not quite as quick on his feet, and he realizes that the last part of his career will not be as dynamic physically as the first part. So what do you do? Where do you go from here? It's the same question great actors and great singers ask when they achieve so much, but now have to reinvent themselves. Well, if you're Houdini, you go on a crusade against an emerging religion, spiritualism. And I call spiritualism a religion on purpose. It's looked at today as a cult or sort of a phase in history. But at that time period, people believed in spiritualism as a faith. And he was very close to his mother, as I've told you. When she died, he wanted more than anything, like all of us do when we lose somebody, to get in contact with her. And there was a particular incident in which he was told that he would, and he was told he had made contact with his mother. And it was a scam. He realized very quickly that the same techniques he was using to deceive the public, they were using to deceive people for real. And he went on a crusade against spiritualism. When we return, the infamous death of the great Harry Houdini, plus the only known audio recording of his voice in existence. This is Our American Stories. Give us a hint by ringing a bell. 
And we continue with the closing segment on the life of the great Harry Houdini. And now we hear from famous magicians of our time about the life of this epic entertainer. But first, we hear the voice of the escape master himself. On October 29th, 1914, the audio was recorded on an Edison wax cylinder and is now the only known vocal recording of Harry Houdini to exist. The recording captures Harry Houdini delivering an introduction to his Chinese water torture cell escape. The audio allows us to hear Houdini's measured cadence and careful enunciation. street performer and magician David Blaine tells the story of a befriended librarian at an early age who introduced him to a book that would set the course for his highly successful career in magic. It was called The Secrets of Houdini. You know, at the age of five, when you see a man chained up sideways to the side of a building, a straitjacket looking really scary, you don't forget that. And I started looking through the book and I started seeing all these amazing things that he was doing. And what I liked about what he was doing is you could very easily tell from the pictures that he was doing things that were real. So it wasn't like an illusion or a magic trick, even though he employed that into what he did. But what the guy was doing was clearly real and physical and dangerous. And it was the things that I think are amazing to this day. Chris Angel is another highly successful and popular magician and illusionist who was directly influenced by the great Harry Houdini. He was more than a magician or an escape artist. He was a provocateur. He was somebody who was popular culture. He was, by all means, the biggest star of his era. And um, I think part of his success came because he understood what the public wanted and even more so understood how to create that interest. I always said that if you cut Houdini with a knife, blood wouldn't come out. Press would. He was a master at that. And uh, 
that inspired me. Magician, illusionist, and comedian Penn Jillette is famous for his work as half of Penn & Teller. There's a fascinating thing about Houdini, uh, deeply fascinating, in that I can't think. Try to maybe sort of put Bob Dylan in this category, uh, but it's very hard to think. You can maybe sort of try to try to sneak in Picasso, try to sneak in Miles Davis, but trying to find someone who in their career made a philosophical or moral change while they were famous. Um, someone who has come out and redefined themselves in a moral way. Houdini became hugely famous as an escape artist, saying to a nation of immigrants, a man born in Budapest, and then standing. I mean, there's a picture of Houdini in, in Times Square hanging upside down in a straitjacket with a whole sea of men in hats. The picture makes me cry every time. And then Houdini's publicity statement, <laughs> I defy the jails of the world to hold me. I mean, can you imagine a more heavy, more, I mean, t- from a rabbi's son from Budapest. I mean, is there anything more uh, uh, purely American than that? He gets to be a superstar as an escape artist. He gets himself into dictionaries as an escape artist. We look back on the 20th century in 100 years and look at um, entertainment. The only two people in the running for being remembered in the 20th century are Elvis Presley and Houdini. And as time goes on, Houdini's winning. When Harry Houdini and his entourage arrived at the Garrick Theater in Detroit, Michigan on October 24th, 1926, he was running a fever. Two days earlier, Houdini had been resting in his dressing room prior to a show in Montreal when a college student named J. Gordon Whitehead approached him. It's difficult to determine exactly what happened from here, as accounts from eyewitnesses are slightly conflicting. However, the general story seems to be that Whitehead asked Houdini if the claim that he could withstand any punch to the abdomen had any truth to it. Houdini assured him that it was true and gave him permission to see for himself. Whitehead immediately took several jabs at Houdini's midsection while the magician supposedly didn't have a chance to prepare for the blows from over-exuberant J. Gordon Whitehead. The punches inflicted more pain than Houdini anticipated, yet he insisted that the evening's scheduled performance must go on. And now, ladies and gentlemen, as you read in the newspapers this morning, Houdini has been challenged to liberate himself from a steel straitjacket. He began the performance with several vanishing acts, culminating with making a woman disappear and conjuring a flower shrub in her place. He made it through the first act, but his condition worsened and he was forced to finish the show. Houdini finally gave in and agreed to go to Grace Hospital in Detroit to have an emergency appendectomy. Doctors performed the surgery, but the damage was already done. Harry Houdini held on for about a week at Grace Hospital, but finally succumbed on October 31st, 1926. He was 52 years old. Which is where our story ends, as it began, on the night of October 31st, 1936, on the rooftop of the Nickenbacher Hotel in Hollywood, California, 10 years to the day after he died. The great Houdini made a pact with his wife, Bess, that he would make every attempt to communicate with her as a spirit from beyond the grave after he was dead. So, 
Every year on Halloween, the widow of Harry Houdini held a seance for him the night of his departure for the next 10 years without ever making contact. In this, the 10th and final seance, gold invitations were sent to 300 guests, reporters, and Hollywood elite. Lights as far away as New York were dimmed, and one minute of silence was observed before the ceremony reached its climax at the final plea for the great Harry Houdini to reveal himself to the world. was in. The great Houdini had made his greatest escape. From the shackles that bound him to this world, to that inevitable escape that we all make, the story of the great Harry Houdini will live on forever. This is our American Stories. And great job as always, and that's Jesse Edwards and my goodness, when he hits it good, he hits it out of the park. And just listening to that, what a stunt Harry Houdini created for all those liars and all those false prophets. He exposed them, even in his grave, setting them up for the kill. A master at the big event. And by the way, what an American story. Born in 1894, Budapest, Hungary, son of a rabbi, a Jew, and outsiders, outsiders in his new country. And he becomes the biggest star there ever was. And again, it was pointed out early. He didn't play someone else like the Valentinos of the early movie world. Houdini played himself to the end. Provocateur. And he understood, as one person said, what the public wanted. The life of Harry Houdini. What a story. Here on Our American Stories. And to listen to all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for another edition of Steve Goldberg's Daydreams. You heard that right. We're going to hear a dude's daydreams. And not just any dude, one of our favorite dudes. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College, is the foremost expert on patriarchy, and a guy who daydreams a lot. And now we bring you Steve and his latest daydream, and before it, Steve reads to us his mandatory disclaimer. These are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, poppied into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. There is a real television program called Shark Tank. The program consists of five real-life billionaires and individuals who bring their inventions for the billionaires to invest in or not, or to occasionally ridicule as hopelessly unlikely to make money. The inventor says what he or she is asking for, say $100,000, in exchange for the bidding billionaires getting 20% of the equity, that is, a fifth ownership of the invention. The billionaire makes the offer or refuses to do so. I am in the program with my invention of a dramatically new kind of prosthetic limb. Well behind me is an obviously legless soldier in a wheelchair. My task now is to persuade a billionaire that my invention is likely to make money, the only thing he or she seems to care about. I make my case explaining the financial virtues of my uh, invention, though it is obvious to both the billionaires and to me that any potential profit fails to approach what is necessary for a billionaire's interest. This is the easy part. I then must face brutal questioning from a nasty billionaire called, as a joke, Mr. Wonderful, a man who has always asserted that he cares about absolutely nothing except money. Without much hope, I explain to Mr. Wonderful that, while the money might be small compared to uh, his usual expectation, it will come with a uh, surprise that will make him happy uh, that he accepted the deal. Mr. Wonderful sneers. At this point, the legless wheelchair-bound soldier, who had been moved off stage without anyone noticing, walks back on stage. Mr. Wonderful, looking a bit sheepish, says, Okay, I'm in. One million dollars. No equity. And that's a great story. And we are now very fortunate to be joined by Steve Goldberg himself and for the first time on the show, his bride, Joan. And thanks both of you for joining us. Good to be here. You bet. Thank you. you. Joan, before, before we start with Steve, what's it like living with Steve? Someone who is as brilliant and who daydreams as much? Talk about life with Steve. Oh, my goodness. Well, life with Steve is um, an endless pageant of surprises. You wake up every day, you have a list of things that you think you're going to do that day, and then all of a sudden, Steve 
interferes with some big idea or some small idea. But it's um, it's a lot of fun, and the imagination couldn't begin to uh, to think it up by itself. That's fun. And how long have you been married to Steve, Joan? How long how long has this love affair uh, gone on? Oh. Well, we've been together for thirty three years. Oh my goodness, that's terrific! And just getting started, right? Just getting started. <laughs> <laughs> just getting started. Let's talk about your mutual passion, uh, Steve. To you first. Uh, uh, shark Tank. I, I, I wouldn't have picked you for a Shark Tank guy, but then you surprise us all the time, Steve. Uh, oh, well, we, we literally may have seen them all. There have been, I believe, 169. And I tried to figure out recently, um, from because they list them all on, online, we've seen at least 165 or many of them a number of times. We really find them fascinating. But what surprised me about, about my daydreams, and particularly with reference to this uh, Star uh, Tank daydream, I can't imagine that anyone would think of the Star Tank daydream as at all funny. But while I wasn't certain that anyone would care in the slightest about my previous daydreams, people seemed to have liked them quite a bit. But everyone who enjoyed the previous daydreams described them as funny. Funny. It never for a moment occurred to me that any, there was anything whatever funny about the daydreams. To be a bit grandiose, I thought of the daydreams as sort of little O. Henry types of stories about someone in trouble and an ending that was surprising and optimistic. That was the daydream's function, and funny had nothing to do with it. Well, you know, I but think if people uh, find them funny, then fine. Well, it's fine with me. It is fine, and let me tell you, a lot of people work very hard to do funny, and they can't get to it. And I think very often in life, funny is that which happens to us that other people think is funny, Steve. And I think this is why it's so hard to find great comedy writing. It's uh, it's a difficult thing to wrap your hands around, and you weren't trying to wrap your hands around it. It's just the effect it's produced. I know it's been a delight to us, and it doesn't mean that all the things you were saying about what your intentions were when you were, or not intentions, because you can't intentionally have a daydream, but what you thought would be the effect of sharing these daydreams, well, I think that that's happened too. But in addition, I think people have found it amusing, the stories amusing. When we come back, we're going to talk to both of you, Steve and Joan, about your favorite Shark Tank episodes. We'll have some clips. We'll talk about ours. And this this love affair with this, this show about a bunch of billionaires trying to get a piece of a company of somebody who's wanting to live the American dream themselves. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. For the two segments here, Steve and Joan Goldberg. Steve, of course, the man who gives us those great daydreams. More after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Steve and Joan Goldberg, and we're talking about Shark Tank, because, well, one of our favorite persons and his bride love a show we love, and I think actually America has come to love, and who would have ever thought this would be the number one show on Fridays in America, and yet it is. It's captivating. And let's talk about the sharks themselves. Joan, who's your favorite shark and why? Well, I, I like Laurie Grenier because I think Laurie is essentially a kind person as well, as well as a very knowledgeable person. And she starts out her critiques exactly as a professional critic would. She um, finds the thing that's positive about the shark's invention, no matter how ridiculous it is. Um, she absolutely respects the shark, and it's very clear in, in the, her interactions with them. Um, and then she ends up by telling them the truth, and they can accept it. Yep, it's true. And she, she's very kind, even as she rejects the uh, pictures and the suitors of the money. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, Steve, who's your favorite? I think Damon is my favorite because he has the the greatest variety in his responses. The others, while they're all interesting, you sort of know where they're coming from from the beginning. With Damon, you really don't know. He has a a, a range of responses, and that's that's what I like about him. And he's also sort of hip. I just like him a lot. Yeah, he's very likable, and you're right. You don't know where he's going to come down. You know what Mr. Wonderful is going to do almost always. He's going to ridicule the folks to get the price down, and then if he does come in with an offer, he wants a royalty agreement in which he That's gets right. paid. Always, always annoying. Always <laughs> annoying. And by the way, I don't know that this show could, though he might not be a favorite, I think he's the indispensable shark because he's the guy that everyone loves to hate. Or oh, that, I think so. So yeah. that, I think that's, I don't think he's anybody's favorite. Now let's get to uh, favorite episodes. Joan, uh, let's talk to you first. One of your favorite episodes. Share with us. Well, my absolute favorite Shark Tank episode came from the very first show. And um, a guy walks on named Darren Darren Johnson. He looks just like an ordinary guy. He's seeking a million dollars in return for 15% equity for product development in his company, the Ionic Ear. You know how frustrating it can be to use typical Bluetooth devices, he says. They slip around, they fall out eventually, you lose them. But he has a solution, the Ionic Ear, an implantable device that improves the process. What are you implanting the Bluetooth into, asked Shark Damon John. Your phone? Some other device? Nope. To make it work, Darren explains, you have it implanted in your neck just below your ear. I remember. We see at the idea of brain surgery, Damon drops out. And <laughs> with that, yeah, that, I, I think I dropped out too. Let's take a listen to the clip of the brain implant uh, story. What we have developed is a implantable Bluetooth technology. If I could direct your attention to the first slide, here's the surgery locations. This is just underneath the ear <laughs> The surgery location? This is, this is surgery. You would be under anesthesia. God. <laughs> you guys are so close-minded. Please let him finish. Okay. Thank okay. you. Thank you. At the base of the device is a battery. Within its center are Bluetooth electronics, and at its tip, a microphone, a speaker, and an AC charging port. Stop the tar- right there. Back to surgery 101. Okay. Sure. Darren, we're gonna we're gonna operate on people. Yes, we are. We're gonna stick something in near their brain. No, we no, may no, no, not no. puncture their. Ear. You know what? I I can sum up where I stand on this already. 
is pretty disturbing and it freaks me out. I'm already out. <laughs> I love that pitch. And they were, you know, you have to both admit, what was fun watching there is how astonished the guys who were pitching were that someone would think this was a bad idea or an uninvestable idea. <laughs> and the inventor was absolutely incredulous. He couldn't understand why the shark tanks were reacting the way they did. Right, right. And then they actually do the post-interview where almost every time they get rejected, they're like, well, we'll show those sharks because it just it almost reminds me of Ralph Cramden in The Honeymooners. Every idea and pitch he ever had was the greatest idea, and most of yeah, them were pretty, right. pretty darn silly. Steve, another favorite of yours. Oh, I think my favorite was the Urination Golf Club. (laughs) This was perhaps the dopiest of all Shark Tank pitches, though, uh, of course, it had lots of competition. Um, This is, just as it sounds, a golf club into which one urinates. No need to go behind a tree, though, of course, it's unlikely you could uh, hide what you were doing from the other golfers um, when you were availing yourself of the virtues of the club. Uh, sharks thought this was as ridiculous as it seemed, and no one bit. And let's take a listen to the Urination Golf Club clip right now. I'm a board-certified urologist, and I have a successful practice in South Florida. Many of my male patients have two things in common. Number one, well, they urinate a lot. And number two, they love to play golf. And if you've been on a golf course, I won't have to convince you that trees are sparse and the bathrooms are almost non-existent. That's why my patients encourage me to design and produce the Euro Club. Uh-oh. I can't wait. I see where this is going. This is a trademark patent pending product that functions as a self-contained receptacle. Can you imagine being in the patent office, Steve, and seeing this product come to your come across your desk? Yeah. Oh, it's delight. One more, Steve, from you, and then we'll, uh, we'll close up the segment. But one more favorite. Okay, I like the drawing of cats. Um, there was a guy who made drawings of cats. He did them all himself, so it wouldn't seem that this was really easy to uh, turn into a huge business. Um, and it, as I say, it struck me as the most uninvest- uninvestable of pitches, um, pretty much like the Urination Golf Club. Um, the guy did all the drawings himself. No chance of success, it seemed to me. But I was wrong. The sharks loved it, and it later became profitable. There is an economy for stupid, and I am overflowing with it. Now, with their universal appeal, my cat drawings are poised to be the next pet rock. I charge people $9.95 for my cat drawings. Nine thirty-two of that is, is profit. 932 is profit. By the way, I have to, if we can give the guys who created this show, and it's Mark Barnett, basically, one of the great TV producers, you know, people are learning a lot, Steve and Joan, about Mm -hmm. how enterprise works. I mean, I have young people at the college, we broadcast here at Ole Miss, who now have Shark Tank parties. They now understand that the billionaire wasn't born a billionaire. Not one of the people on that stage grew up with any money. None of them. Right. So they're all self-made, and so now we dispel the idea that you come to this country and you're either rich or poor, and that's that, that we live and are born in static classes. But moreover, now what the people want, they don't just want the money of the shark for partial ownership. They're looking for something more. They're looking for the wisdom of the shark. That is their knowledge. one of the things that's really great that the, the sharks, every one of them points out that they've, they've gone through failure in their lives, and they weren't overnight successes. They had lots of failures, many of them, before they really hit it. 
Yep, it's so true. And I love it when periodically someone will be having their product move along, but they're not really ready yet. And the sharks will go, go back and work harder or go back and get more sales or you're okay without our money. You don't need our money. There are many times where the pitch is so good, the profit's so good, the sharks are like, what do you need us for? Just keep going. You can do this by yourself. So I, I find that, you know, in, in the end, it's a tremendous defense of capitalism, this show. Any thoughts on that? Well, to Shark Tank's credit, a good number of the people who come on Shark Tank didn't have the an idea till they saw a Shark Tank. Yep. And then they said, maybe there's something I can come up with. And they did, and they got on Shark Tank, and in some cases was successful. It's quite impressive. It really is. And, Joan, any final thoughts for everybody on, on, on Shark Tank as, as a lover and a listener? Um, I think that you have to be aware that it becomes addictive, that um, as soon as you cross in front of that TV set, especially if you have somebody who DVRs for it, you can look at Shark Tank any time of the day or night, and it's a great procrastinator. Oh, it really is. And I, I ever think I know a reason why. Each one of them is a story. Each one has human characters. You, I mean, right. you don't know who's right. coming through next. It could be a crazy pitch. It could be fun. It's like the gong show, almost. You never know what's coming on next. But you, right. you, you, the characters involved, and I think they've done a great job on the shark side of having very different kinds of sharks that appeal yeah. to very different types of people. Well, I, you know, I, I appreciate both of you. We should come on again every few months, pick some of your other favorite Shark Tank episodes. We love this show. America loves this show. And America loves a dream fulfilled. And my goodness, you're right. People are now watching the show and thinking, heck, I got an idea. Let me pitch it to the Sharks. This is Lee Habib. We've been talking to Steve and Joan Goldberg. And thanks so much, both of you, for joining us. And we look forward to having you on next time to talk about Shark Tank. Thank you very much. And thank you both. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. talking about John Cazale for the hour and we love talking about art here on our American stories and music and what's beautiful about movies is the intersection of screenwriting so there's the writing there's that human talent almost that operatic talent of the actor and then of course there's the music and again one day we're going to be putting together and I hope real soon just an hour or two on soundtracks and the stories of the people behind those soundtracks because a soundtrack can make or break a movie. And you're listening to the soundtrack from The Deer Hunter. And by the way, to remind you, Cazale, well, he created four characters in five feature films that I think can still be regarded 
as benchmarks of film acting. And the films he were in, all of them received Oscar nominations. And that's pretty unbelievable. John's art was ahead of the curve in the evolution of acting. That's what made him special. When the 20th century began with silent movies, acting was demonstrative, it was demonstrative, it was exaggerated. Lots of big gestures. It was still based in the traditions of the stage. Because on the stage, you've got to hit the back row. And thus, the big gestures. As the technology developed, first with the introduction of sound, and then with the refinements in the process itself, actors came to understand they could be subtler in their performances. Still, the desire to emote, to show off, was always present. During the 1950s, actors such as two of John's idols, Montgomery Cliff and Marlon Brando, embraced Stanislavski's method of acting. And he's a Russian critic and teacher of acting. And began to explore the underlying motivations and emotions in their characters. So in other words, going from representational acting to, well, getting under the skin acting. This resulted in greater realism, along with heightened emotionalism, which showed itself in climactic moments. John didn't push anything. Instead, he could invite people in and compel them to draw closer to the character he was playing. But back to the story. What John knew was that our perception of someone comes from nonverbal input. Much more than verbal. How many times have you said, quote, I met this guy and he seemed okay, but there was just something about him I didn't like. It was nothing he said or did, that's for sure. It was just a sense that you got about him. That sense comes from all the energy generated by what the guy is thinking and feeling, all the things that make up his history and therefore his personality. It works the same way in acting, and Cazell knew how to find this life in his characters. Paradox was always present in his work. He didn't play good guys. All his characters had flaws, some more than others. He played a pimp, a thief, and perhaps a killer, and a braggart who waved a gun in the faces of his friends and at least once punched a woman. The most normal of his characters was a professional voyeur. Yet somehow... We have affection for each of these men, or at least an acceptance of them. And that's because John never judged the character he was playing. He understood the character, all the characters. Such understanding can only come through exploring their humanity, their motivation. Here's Steve Buscemi and co-star Al Pacino discussing Cazale's role as bank robber Sal in Dog Day Afternoon. Just from the moment you see him on screen in Dog Day Afternoon, he's so... Um, you the manager? He's so strange looking, you know, a really intense face. And then, you know, the, the receding hair, uh, hairline, the huge forehead, and then the long hair. Um, I had just never seen a character like that on film before. Just keep talking like nothing was wrong. I remember we were casting and Sidney Lament wanted a a 19-year-old boy, to, he thought that would be very important, and he was sort of right. I'd been reading a lot of people for it, and Al kept asking me to uh, 
to read John. So, of course, Sidney, I would think, well, John, that's not what I'm thinking, John Casale, no, the guy who did Fredo, no. Finally, because I've got such respect for Al, John came in, I was just stunned. He could not have looked wronger. And then he read. And it was just the most extraordinary connection. I ain't going back to that prison, Sonny. I mean, I got the image of him in my mind, you know, that image of that character, oh, man. Everything he did, the hair, that, the movement. Yo, come with me. Watch him. Sit down, sit down. The intensity. Wow. You know, he's very intense, uh, but, but nervous. I mean, you felt at any time that he could really lose it. Stay right there! Casale is scary in that movie. He completely erases the dynamic that he had with Pacino in the Godfather movies. Hey, you, manager! Don't get ideas. I bark. That man there, see him? He bites. You don't ever really believe when you're watching the movie that Pacino is going to kill someone. Casale, you think, might. There's a way out of this. I'm Listen, telling you, there's a way out of this. Were you serious about what you said? About what? About throwing... about throwing those bodies out the door. Yeah, well, that's what I want, and you know, that's what I want him to think. Come on, what do you think? Because I'll tell you right now, I'm ready to do it. Well, I'll tell you something, when he says that line, you believe he's ready to kill somebody just out of fear, you know? And, and I think that, that intensity level's in his eyes throughout the entire film. He, he provides that. It's right there, those eyes. It's like they cut to him a lot in that movie. And it's it's because he's got that, he's got the stakes. And Lamette needs that to get the audience revved up. There's just something in that face that takes you into uh, an area that's very dark, personally dark, and heartbroken. Heartbroken and dark. And, well, that's Cazale. A compelling choice John made was to play Sal in this movie in the direction opposite that which most actors would choose. Typically, the psychotic gunman starts out soft-spoken and builds to a frenzy by the climax of the film. But here, instead, Sal is commanding at the start, barking orders at people, dominating them. Then, as the situation grows more complicated... He retreats inside of himself. And the quieter he gets, the more dangerous he becomes. And by the way, that's so complicated and so brilliant. And you would read a script and there's no way you could come up with that. You know, when I first looked at a screenplay and a script for theater and I studied acting for a long time, I just was so overwhelmed with all the choices you could make, how to do it. It's not like reading a novel. When you read a novel, it's all there for us. But in the end, I agree with something a great acting coach once said. For the ordinary American, for the ordinary person, or even the average actor, it's best to just watch Shakespeare performed, because to read it is to miss the point. It's a blueprint for actors. And it's an emotional blueprint. And there's emotional data all over the place. But the average person can't see it. They can't see the subtext. They can't see the stage. They can't hear the music. And my goodness, Cazelle could hear all of that. He could see all of it somehow. And that's what made him great. Also, what he did was these opposites. He, he was able to do the opposite. If you ever get to see On the Waterfront, there's a scene where Rod Steiger 
is going to sell out his brother. He's telling his brother, an aspiring possible boxing champ, to throw a fight for the mobsters. You would think Marlon Brando would come through the seat and punch his brother. But all Brando does is the opposite. And all he says is, Charlie, Charlie. Like he was just disappointed. That's what made Brando great. It's what made Cazale great. This is Our American Stories, our final segment on the life of John Cazale after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite regular features, and it's called The Burning Question with Heidi Mitchell. Her latest question for the Wall Street Journal, and you can see it there regularly, should high schools offer nap time? And I know the whole staff here is thinking, should Habib offer nap time? (laughs) And, well, Heidi, how how did this subject come up, and is there nap time in Heidi household? Oh, I'm feeling I'm feeling bad. I shouldn't even say that, but it's my it's the day after my birthday. It's not even my birthday, but I'm uh, I'm working from bed. This is what I do on days when it's beautifully sunny out, but too cold to go outside. But should there be nap time in high school? Well, so this is the, okay. The, where the idea came from was I'm ashamed to admit, but I was in, I was applying my oldest son for high school, and we were talking to all these kids here in our new town of Chicago, and every kid was talking about how they have a nap club or they bring their sleeping bags to school or they're encouraged to use their free periods um, to take a little snooze. There's sofas at some schools where they're allowed to lay down and just take a little break. There's, um, there's a free period. If you, Your free period can come early in the morning, first period, if you have good grades, so you can sleep in. And so then I started to look into it, and, you know, it was like 2014. There was a big movement from the um, American Academy of um, Pediatrics that uh, talked about pushing school start times, especially for high schoolers, to no earlier than 8.30. I don't know what time your high school started. Mine started at 7.15 in Arizona. Wow. And, and by the way, Heidi, they start in the South. They start even elementary school. I take my kid to school at quarter to seven for a seven o'clock start, which means she's getting up at six. And I got to tell you, it don't make any sense to me. You know, it's sixth brutal, graders right? getting up that early. It's brutal. So then add on top of it, high schoolers who have like four hours of homework, perhaps a sport, maybe they're doing model UN, they're, uh, they're studying for their SATs. They have a social life. They're, of course, they're all on their phones all the time. And these kids are ending up with maybe five hours of sleep. So sleep deprivation is really a big problem. So there was a big move to move um, school start times to no earlier than 8.30. It did happen here in Chicago. Um, And it's hard because the routes of the buses and parents going to work and all these things have to change after school sports. It's a big dramatic shift. It hasn't happened everywhere. So some schools for whom this hasn't happened, they're looking at other ways where they can attack sleep deprivation. And a lot of it, interestingly, is happening at schools where kids are at risk for dropping out of high school, not going on to college, 
Um, so it isn't just there was a, a lot of talk with my editors about like, well, is this just, you know, coddling these snowflakes? <laughs> and, right. um, but it isn't. I mean, a lot of uh, there's like data to back up that there's not a lot of data amongst teenagers because you, you can't really do so much data. But there was some in Brazil um, and some in Europe. And um, and there's lots of data about shift workers that can benefit from naps. Um, and from just grown-ups that can benefit not too long of a nap, like 20 to 30 minutes is really optimal. Um, And then it comes into, like, do we have space? Do we have um, teachers who can oversee this? Can we assure that these children aren't abusing their privilege? So it's a a complicated Yeah, there's a lot lot to think about. A lot to think (laughs) about. And by the way, you know, it's interesting. We talk about the snowflakes, and they're out there. But I've also noticed, and I think you have too, Heidi, that there's never been more pressure on kids, too. I mean, when I went to high school, no one was taking SAT camp. When I played basketball, I didn't go on the road and play all over multi-states. I didn't have all the advanced placement and all the pressure about my my GPA being 4.25 out of a four-point. So we've created snowflakes, but at the same time, boy, we've been bearing down on these kids, and a lot of these kids... They bear down on themselves. And then when you take the inner city kids, and I've spent a lot of time around them, my goodness, the stressful environment some of these kids live in, there's no sleeping at night. Exactly. I mean, there were some some educators I spoke with, and they said, you know, one kid's mom had sold his mattress for money. And so he was sleeping on the floor. And so, of course, he's tired. So it isn't just kids that are going to private schools and have every advantage. Yes, they, they I think they themselves and their parents feel like they need to be, you know, the president of every club right. and on the travel soccer team as the captain and all that stuff in order to get into, you know, Princeton. But but also just kids that need to just cope. I mean, kids need, they need eight and a half to ten and a half hours of sleep. Yep. I mean, an eight and a half to nine and a half is the sleep, uh, American Academy of Sleep Medicine says. And that's just I mean, how are you going to squeeze that in? So I thought it was a really interesting idea. So some of these schools have like a wellness center They're in, in California, Northern California. They put, especially for these at-risk kids, they put the wellness center on campus, which is so smart so that kids can see doctors talk about sex ed, things they maybe can't do at home or don't have access to. Um, they can do that at school. And along with that is like a cozy, comfortable area where they can have a cup of tea and it's free and just they chill out on a, on a couch for a couple minutes or 15 minutes and just relax and take a break from the day. There are other schools who are doing really interesting things using, and they're really test cases, but using transcendental meditation and then the, 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 other group is the control group is they're not doing transcendental meditation meditation. They're just doing um, quiet time. They call it quiet time. And it's, I mean, these are kids that are old. I mean, they're 16, 17 year olds and they're sitting in a room and not talking, no electronics for 15, 20 minutes um, at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day. And they've seen grades go up. They've seen violence decrease. So I don't believe that it's, um, you know, it's, it's something that for these coddled kids and a lot of the posts, I mean, there were a lot of positive comments at the bottom, but a lot of them were also like, how about parents, parents, and let their kids sleep at night. But parents are also saying, I want you to go to college, and I want you to get good grades. So there's just a lot of pressure coming at them from every angle. You bet. And in Japan, Maizen High School gained international attention a decade ago for encouraging a midday siesta for all students. And teachers saw a dramatic rise in test scores. Heidi, talk about that. Isn't that interesting? So Japan is an interesting case because they put 
um, they take pride in their nap time. Um, so they, there's a word for it. I don't remember what it is. There was a New York Times na- um, article on how falling asleep, it's called being asleep and being present. It's a word that translates that, but the sleeping at your desk or on the train is very common and isn't looked down upon. Whereas, you know, in New York City on the subway, you know, you nudge the guy next to you like you're asleep, dude. Um, and so there, there isn't a stigma attached to falling asleep and it's maybe even beneficial. Um, I've talked to other um, people like at the Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic and they, um, they take naps in the middle of the day, turn off all the, I mean, these are highly engaged professional you know, researchers and, and top of their field, and they will take a 20-minute nap in the middle of the day. So there are cultures in certain settings where napping is, of course, there's a siesta, which is part of Latin American and Spanish culture. And it makes sense because you would rise with the sun and you would sleep with the sun, and so sometimes your days are long. Yep. And after lunch, there's a known dip in your mental state, and so it makes sense that after lunch you'd maybe carve out 15, 20 minutes and, and just Chillax. Oh, I'm half Italian, Heidi. That was a part of our <laughs> life. We had the big meals on Saturday and Sunday in the early afternoon, and then everybody went their ways and took a nap, and it got really quiet. And yes, it was and the wonderful. Rest of productive, right? Yep. I mean, you're you're alert and awake. Cause for four o'clock, I mean, kids will take a power shake. They'll drink a Starbucks. You know, to get, just like grownups do, you know, to stay awake at four o'clock and and get be alert and you know be able to tackle AP calculus. And it's it's tough. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I'm all for this. I think that the days probably need to be long enough, you know, so you could squeeze in a 20-minute nap and just, like, maybe play some Enya, turn down the music. <laughs> exactly. And get turn off your cell light. phone. And get off your cell get phone. Get off your cell phone. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now, not everyone is convinced, Heidi, as we close this out. Not everyone's convinced that this works. What are some of the teachers' and parents' responses that you talk about? And, again, we're talking to Heidi Mitchell of the Wall Street Journal, and this is one of our favorite segments, The Burning Question. What was some of the mixed reaction? So one that I really thought was well argued was that the reason why we are tired at whatever it is, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at, at night, it's because it, the distance from your last sleep is how tired you're going to be. So it's called sleep pressure. And if you nap in the middle of the day, you could be taking away some of that sleep pressure, which then might encourage these already overtaxed teenagers to stay up even later because they're just not tired. So you want to make sure that that they have enough sleep pressure that they're falling asleep. So you could make that nap, you know, if school starts at 8 and you can make that nap at 12.30, they're still going to be tired by 10.30. And right. I think 10 hours is fine. So, so she had a good argument, though, that I'd rather see kids going to bed, you know, at 9.30 and waking up at 5.30 or whatever and getting their real eight and a half hours in. Um, then, then she would seeing them take a nap at school. And then, of course, many people I spoke to were like, where are they getting the money? And where are they finding the space? And like, who's donating the yoga mats? And, you know, is this a reality? Or are these kids just, you know, making out in the bathroom and, and, <laughs> and texting each other during right. this supposed nap time? Right. Um, so That's what, you know, lot, Heidi, what I worry about or wonder about is you get a bunch of kids and you go, okay, kids, nap. And how does that right. work? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can take a, a horse to water, right? But I think that just even studies have shown that even just darkening the room and calming it down, yep. I mean, especially with if you can meditate or just not clear your mind of any thoughts for 10 minutes, for 15 minutes, it does have an impact on the rest of your day and you're more able to learn. I mean, some people were saying to me, this might be the new free school lunch, right. that they realized that kids couldn't learn in the afternoons because they weren't eating. So they brought in this free lunch 
Um, and one of the schools I spoke to, like 90% of their kids are on the free lunch program and they're letting them um, use these nap pods and they've seen violence go down in the school and they've seen less um, absenteeism. So, well, if it works, know, if it works, Heidi, the jury's out. But, you know, we love the subject. Should high schools offer nap time and should our American stories offer nap time? That's the burning <laughs> question here in the office. Thanks, as always, for joining us, Heidi. Thank you. This Enjoy is, your nap. You bet. This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. Heidi Mitchell of The Wall Street Journal.